the story of samsara, isn't it? The lapel mic just never clips, right? How are you doing? It's been a hot one, huh? It's a lot it's a lot to practice in these conditions. Although I'm sure Tara could tell you a few stories about practicing in steamy tropical climes of in Southeast Asia. But there is physical discomfort. Let's just acknowledge it. I remember when I was a kid, you know, when it got to be days like this, then uh, once in a while my mom would give us a few bucks and say, go to the movies. And the secret was the movies had air conditioning and the house definitely didn't. So undoubtedly you've been watching some movies in your mind today. There are various forms of arising. You notice the more you resist discomfort, the more you suffer. You notice that? Not that there's anything wrong with easing discomfort if you can, but you ever notice when something's going on and you can't get rid of it? Like the more the mind fights with it, the more miserable you become. That's that's a real down-to-earth lay lesson in the value of letting go. Just that observation that you can make for yourself. I'm going to talk tonight about concentration. A bit about what it is. Uh, a bit more perhaps about how it fits into the main teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, his foundational teachings, and how it fits into freeing your mind, actually liberating your mind from delusion and the suffering that it causes. So that's a very ambitious agenda. So if it turns into a two-part talk, then it just does. So here we know we're, we're uh, at a retreat that's inclining us towards the cultivation of concentration, in particular samadhi, this quality of mind. But it's really important up front to acknowledge and speak to and embrace the fact that we're actually not just practicing concentration, we're actually practicing the whole path. We're practicing the whole path. And one of the things that that means is that we're practicing in the presence of mindfulness and with mindfulness. And those of you who know anything about the Buddhist teachings know that this quality of mindfulness, sati, is very key. And the role of sati, the importance of of sati, 
is one of the things that is a real hallmark of the Buddhist teaching. And it's interesting, mindfulness, this ability to remember to attend, to be present in a receptive, real-time way with experience arising at any of the six sense doors. All of that is so important. Why would that be? Well, to be in touch with reality, you have to be in touch with reality, I suppose would be one way to put it. <laughs> so what allows you to be in touch with reality moment to moment in a, in a balanced and wise way? Well, it's this quality of sati, the practice of a certain kind of present tense awareness. And it's only the presence of mindfulness that allows us to cultivate wise concentration. And it's wise concentration that we're interested in cultivating. So, you know, if we think about it very long, we can recognize that there are a lot of different ways that the mind can be concentrated. And some of these might have nothing to do with morality or with wisdom whatsoever. So one example that's sometimes given where we could probably say the mind is pretty concentrated might be the concentration of a cat burglar, right? Somebody who's just like completely present, completely non-distracted, very, very focused. The mind's very unified on what's going on, what they need to do to, I don't know, jimmy a lock or slip down a rope through a skylight or something like that. The mind's concentrated. It's present. But here we could probably agree that the actions being taken are unethical, right? There's a stealing going on there and a kind of abuse of social trust. But here, the kind of concentration that we're working with is developed within the context of the Buddhist system. And we're cultivating this concentration for a particular reason. So the context is the framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And the particular purpose that we have for undertaking this cultivation is to find liberation for ourselves and to be of benefit to others. So that's the point of this, all of it. And there are many other benefits also, of course, things like stress reduction or, you know, increase in connectivity between the two hemispheres of the brain or, you know, lengthening the telomeres, uh, extending your life perhaps and your cogency into old age. Bonus points bonus points. So we are practicing to find liberation for ourselves, for our own benefit and for that of other beings. And so there's an important discernment at the heart of what we do, and that has to do with whether our actions of body, speech, and mind, including these meditative cultivations, actually lead us deeper into suffering, whether they lead us towards greater freedom, happiness, and internal peace. 
So that's the question. So if you know anything about the structure of the Buddhist teachings, you know that the second step on the Eightfold Path, right behind wise view, is wise intention, wise intention. So what's it mean? My understanding is it's a kind of big picture compass that orients us towards what we want to develop and what we want to let go of. So wise intention is a basic clarification. And the Buddha says it's very important to recognize and uh, take into consideration the fact that actions born born from craving, aversion, and delusion actually are arising out of suffering and lead to more suffering if we relate to these unwisely. And he says, actions that arise out of generosity, loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, renunciation, these, these are onward leading. This, these are actually going to get us moving in the direction of where we want to go. This is the trail we want to follow. Because it moves us in the direction of greater freedom, greater happiness, and towards liberation, towards empowerment at the deepest kind of level of the heart and mind. So this cultivation of wise intention gives us a clear understanding of the skillful direction that we might take. Then it's up to us to figure out how to act on this insight of what's beneficial. Fortunately, the rest of the Eightfold Path fills in more about how to take this direction and trains us and supports us in the tools in doing so. So if you look at the the teaching of wise intention, which is the second step of the path, right after that you get the steps of the path that are talked about as the morality steps or the, the sila steps. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. You want to... And, and just like with the precepts, they're largely uh, formulated in, in along the lines of this dichotomy presented by wise intention. There are a certain kind of way in which wise intention get becomes more specific in terms of our outward expression in action. And there's another aspect of related to this teaching, which is teaching on karma. Karma. You ever hear the, the lay translation of karma and the phrase? What goes around comes around, you know. Sometimes offered kind of like hopefully <laughs> when somebody's done somebody dirty, like maybe you. Mm-hmm. What goes around comes around, like you gotta get yours, right? Well, maybe you will, but you won't necessarily tie it back to the naughty you did. Maybe sometimes it's clear, straightforward. But the important thing is, you know, karma doesn't act 
just in the negative. It doesn't act just in the direction of uh, creating the conditions for the future arising of suffering. It also acts in the direction of creating the causes and conditions for the future arising of increased freedom of mind and happiness. So this idea that there's a there's a moral element to the universe that actually has uh, future results or potential future results that you're actually planting certain seeds of future experience. This is a very potent idea. So The Buddha says that actions taken from greed, aversion, and delusion sow the potential for future conditions and arisings of similar states and actions. So really when you think about it, you know, what would be a negative side effect of an unskillful relationship to the arising of, say, hatred in the mind stream? Well, there's the immediate difficulty of the state and its unpleasantness. But then there's, well, if the mind kind of like doubles down on that, tends to go in that direction, doesn't know how to relate to that, doesn't know how to reframe it, doesn't know how to redirect it, doesn't know how to deconstruct it, the mind actually can incline towards that, right? It can become a kind of habit of mind that is present more often in the mind stream in stronger and stronger and more frequent manner. And just in the same way, a skillful recognition of and a skillful relationship to wholesome states of mind like loving kindness or generosity, compassion, um, sila itself, sets in, in motion the causes and conditions, the seeds of future similar kind of arisings. So in a certain kind of way, by how we relate to our immediate experience, we're always either supporting or undercutting future arisings of that same nature. That's kind of a wild thought, isn't it? You're like, uh, you know, Mr. Green Jeans, this childhood uh, character on TV, you know, this guy that would wear overalls and you'd have a watering can and hoe and stuff, you know. He'd be trimming things and he'd be watering things and he'd be digging up weeds and all the rest of it. <laughs> Well, we're always Mr. Green Jeans in relationship to our own mind stream, but most of the time we don't recognize that. So, so it's important to be ethical as a minimal step in the direction of cultivating what's wholesome and letting go of what's unwholesome.
So, you know, wise intention is important because if we understand what kind of actions are onward leading and which contribute to suffering, and then it kind kind of becomes organic to refrain from doing things that are going to hurt you. So we do that out of compassion, but also out of wisdom, because we can see that the source of those kinds of impulses or actions is delusion, and they're not creating any, any kind of outcome that we would actually want to inhabit. I mean, would you want to inhabit the world that you, say, have created through an unskillful relationship to the state of hatred or rage? You know, imagine feeding that, doubling down on that over the course of years. You know, and inadvertently, many of us have done that kind of cultivation of things that we now recognize as like, wow, my mind just really hurts, my heart and mind really hurts. Or craving, cultivation of craving, you know, the response to distress or the response to um, the experience of something pleasant with the mind that, you know, just grabs it, it's got to have it, it's got to have it. It's the most important thing is to have what's pleasant or what's attractive or what's wanted. So imagine or, or consider for yourself the experience of having a mind that does that. Just kind of like goes organically for what's most pleasant at any any time. I mean, your life would be like a total mess. Because we know, even at a basic human level, that sometimes you have to forego certain things and to get in order to get higher benefit, right? You might not want to go <laughs> go to school and study, you know, uh, trigonometry. I didn't. <laughs> but sometimes we have to kind of go uphill against the grade, right? If we want to, want to get move in the direction a certain direction that requires us to develop competency or a wise relationship to these impulses of the heart and mind. So as it pertains to the cultivation of concentration, sila is a a necessary element. It's a major support to our ability to do this. And that's because it supports the mind in being calm, easily contented, and untroubled by past actions. So if the mind is like that, it makes it a lot easier to be present with immediate experience Uh, with the meditation object that you've selected because the mind has already developed and is developing the wholesome impulse to let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. It's okay settling with this. This breath sensation or this metaphrase. It's good. It's good to go. Even in the initial stages of cultivation where there might be challenges to the cultivation, it might not feel satisfying, it might feel actually feel difficult, still the mind has got a kind of willingness to it, right? 
It's not fighting internally with itself so much. I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Why should I have to do that? There's better things that I could be doing. Maybe that happens in the mind, but the mind recognizes it. And, but the adult, wise proctor comes in and says, yeah, we don't want to do it. I don't know who the we is, but we don't want to do it, but we're, we're doing it. Okay. Ice cream after school, or whatever your version of that is. So if the mind has developed this wholesome habit of letting go of impulses born from the three poisons, greed, aversion, and delusion, then concentration can establish itself because the five hindrances that flow from greed, aversion, and delusion, each of which is conditioned, are less likely to arise. So after you get past the the sila practice and the Eightfold Path, then you go to the the direct cultivation, the samadhi part of the Eightfold Path. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So here's here's where we're, we're taking the orienting principles of the of wise intention and we're operationalizing them. So when the Buddha talks about wise effort, he's basic he basically says something along the lines of, well, you want to, you know, close out or let go of the unwholesome things and you want to summon and cultivate and maintain the wholesome. Right? So this is a a kind of uh, more specifically developed refrain coming from wise wise intention. So how do you do that? How do you do this wise effort? Well, you have to have the tools of wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So this is your your hoe and spade or however you want to think of it. These are your tools. So let's look at wise concentration and what it actually consists of, how we can understand it and its particular role in the liberation of the mind. So unlike the cat burglar, wise concentration arises out of wisdom and mindfulness. So it's directed towards the cultivation of the qualities of heart and mind that are onward leading. So it's completely within the context of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And it's always accompanied by mindfulness and sila and wise intention. And it has the flavor of joy and happiness related to letting go and delight in renunciation, delight So there's a teaching uh, that summarizes the Buddha's offering as in this kind of way. 
The practice path is the development of the mind of non-clinging. The mind of non-clinging. So this is a mind that doesn't crave, it doesn't thirst after any particular experience. It organically gravitates towards letting go, allowing immediate experience to be known without resistance. And this connection with immediate experience, this non-resistant connection to immediate experience, supported by mindfulness and held with wise intention, frees up all the relationship, all the resources of the heart and mind to find wise relationship to what's being known. The mind is let go, let go. Let go of what? Let go of the rope burn of trying to make things be a particular way. So we're talking about this on the scale of immediate experience, right? Connecting with immediate experience. It's not a statement about your life and just letting your life wander all over and never do anything with it, right? We're talking it now on the scale of immediate experience and the heart-mind's relationship to it. Present tense arising, we could say. So the basic premise of the Buddhist teaching is that it's actually wisdom that liberates the heart and mind. And so in this, wise concentration is a really powerful tool that allows us to know and experience reality in a, in a deeper, more continuous and detailed way. So there's enhanced observational power there at least in part, because when concentration is well established, then the five hindrances of craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt are at least temporarily at bay. They're in abeyance. They're not present. So what's the mind like when those, those states of discomfort, those states of suffering are absent? The Buddha talks about it in terms of the mind being radiant when adventitious defilements, great phrases, right? When adventitious defilements are absent, the mind is radiant. So that means that when wise concentration is strong and well-established, the hindrances are not there, the mind is radiant. It's at peace, it's happy, it's not disturbed. So in the absence of all those kinds of difficult states of suffering, there's no impeding or interrupting of our ability to directly cultivate wholesome states because we've got an open field. Right? We can, do, for instance, do the meta practice, and the mind will just like sink into it. Find delight in the phrases. Find delight in the the feeling tone of meta. 
find joy in doing it, like to do it, want to do it. And the second piece is our ability to see our experience is more consistent, uninterrupted, and happens at a deeper level, more resolution. You know for yourself, you know, when I was in high school, when I was a girl, when I was a girl, you know, in high school we had these... uh, um, microscopes, you know, where you would crank it down, there'd be like a slide or something, and you'd have a drop of water or something, and you would crank it down, you'd be able to see the, you know, maybe the amoeba or something, some little thing that's in the drop of water on the slide, and it would be very revelatory in a certain kind of way. Wow, there's a whole reality that exists below the level of my usual ability to perceive. There's all kinds of stuff going on all the time that I have no knowledge of. Well, your minds, heart minds are like that too. There's all kinds of things going on all the time that in the absence of a concentrated mind and the presence of mindfulness, you have no ability to see and observe. So a very well concentrated mind, you might want to consider to be more like, I don't know, an electronic microscope. I'm sure there's further development there too. Right where you're seeing things, or some kind of quantum view of things, where it just looks really, really different. Because in a certain kind of way, the eye through which you're looking is very different. So there's a way that samadhi or concentration really supports our ability to see things at a much more granular, granular, deep, deeper level, more profound. Oh, I didn't know there's like stuff in water, like amoebas and stuff. Oh, I didn't know there's like atoms. I didn't know there's... <laughs> So this ability to to go in deep, to see more clearly, breaks apart the seeming solidity of our experience and the worldview that we form from seeing and experiencing things on a very superficial and uh, uh, tinted by uh, delusion and hindrance kind of level. What if you could like drop below the level of the hindrances and see what things look like there? So concentration can have a lot of power, but I'm going to speak a little bit definitionally about what it is now. So in Pali, the word is samadhi, samadhi. So, one way it's translated is undistractedness. And it comes from a, a, the Pali prefix siam, which means together, and the root da, which means to put or to place. 
So in other words, unifying the mind in a steady, undistracted awareness. Unification of mind. And there's another word that's often used in association with samadhi, which is ekagata, which means one-pointedness of mind or unification of mind. So Bhante Gunarantana, the the Sri Lankan monk, defines it as a concentration in samadhi as a gathering together of all the positive forces of the mind, tying them into a bundle and then wielding them into a single intense beam that will stay where we put it. You want to feel the feeling in your big toe? No problem. You want to know the sensations of the pause at the exhale, no problem. You want to feel the, the micro-movements of the foot as you walk, no problem. You want to notice the mind's relationship to the arising of pleasant Vedana and see the movement of the mind towards grasping there with mindfulness which causes the mind to let go of the grasping. You want to see what it's like when pleasantness arises in the mind and grasping does not occur. And what follows from a mind that can let go of attachment in relationship to feeling tone? No problem. Ajahn Brahm says samadhi is attentive stillness. Attentive stillness. There's a kind of stillness in the mind. It's not ruffled. It's not agitated. It's not restlessness when samadhi is well developed has been subdued. Kind of settles down. Shaila Catherine says... Uh, the mental factor of one-pointedness with its characteristic of non-distraction is sometimes used synonymously with concentration. And she says mental factors like one-pointedness, decision, energy, mindfulness work together to drive attention to the chosen object and consolidate the associated mental factors into a state we commonly recognize as being concentrated. There's a lot going in there on the micro level. It's being unified as you attempt to do something so simple as just find the breath and stay with it. All these other things that are in the mind stream that are probably largely unconscious to you get activated and get mobilized and come in and help support that if you approach this task with some wisdom and wise intention. All the wholesome things are now being employed and deployed and are coming forward to help. So concentration emerges when wholesome mental factors come together 
creating stable unification of mind that allows us to choose an object of awareness at will and to be able to stay with it mindfully. That's pretty groovy, huh? So, you know, how does this serve us in terms of moving towards liberation? I said earlier that the key to liberation is wisdom, an experiential kind of wisdom, not just book learning, not just, you know, hearing the teachings. Yeah, that makes sense. Because we all know certain things at that level. I mean, everybody says, well, yeah, things change. Things change. You know, we can acknowledge that things change, right? Mr. Green Jeans has, you know, gone to his reward. But we really know the truth of impermanence. So... Can we see, for instance, at levels of consciousness, both gross and subtle, that what we experience is the truth of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and not-self over and over again? That that's what's going on there. When we see that at these different levels of mind over and over and over again, the mind kind of like wakes up to what, you know, what the design characteristics are of conditioned reality, if you want to put it that way. It wakes up to the way it causes problems for itself by fighting with its own mind stream. I mean, who who are you teeing off against when the mind is like fighting over an unpleasant sensory experience. I mean, you're like, you know, dope slapping yourself. It's like, oh, it's so hot. Uh, uh, uh. So, you know, as we watch more closely, we wake up to the way that our uneducated reactivity is suffering and so is the seed for the arising a future suffering. Okay. If all this is going on on this, this mind moment level, there doesn't seem to be much control over it. Huh. And what to do, what to do. Well, it has something to, to do about following the path to freedom that involves the very paradoxical Aikido move of fully accepting the truth about how things are and harmonizing with it. So in that, we joyfully relinquish the suffering of fighting with reality and experience the freedom and peace of letting go. So we let go out of wisdom, having come to the understanding about that is wise and onward leading and seeing what is clinging to and acting out of delusion and understanding, just as we started to discuss back in the section about wise intention, you know, which way the compass is pointing us in terms of giving good advice about how to proceed. 
So to wrap the discussion back around our meditation here, we're developing concentration to gain relief from the immediate suffering of the hindrances. That's level one. We're training our ability and willingness to let go and see the relief and wisdom in doing that. So in the process, we're magnetizing all these wholesome qualities of mind using mindfulness as the lead horse. And as our unification of mind becomes stronger, mindfulness itself becomes stronger and more continuous because we have fewer distractions. There's happiness and contentment uh, present. And the mind starts to see for itself that there's joy in experience which is non-sensory in nature. Now you know there's joy and experience that's non-sensory in nature, right? You can you can probably think of at least one experience that you've had that isn't really sensory in nature that brought you joy. Like, how about the thought of your of your uh, nephew who struggled to get through uh, high school? actually winding up going to a trade school and now having a really good job that he loves because he can use his hands and his intelligence in that kind of way. That's nothing you're putting in your pocket. So this is very paradoxical, some of these teachings. You know, by learning to let go, by practicing renunciation of turning everything towards the pursuit of immediate sensory pleasure, the mind actually can find peace and contentment within itself. And deep pleasure of a wholesome nature. Pleasure that won't get you in any kind of trouble and is only onward leading. So in order for this to happen, we have to draw, draw on our willingness to meet difficulties and challenges in the process of, process of discerning wise effort in the cultivation of concentration. Being patient, inclining the mind to be non-reactive and equanimous when obstacles arise when we try to follow the meditation instructions. I don't know if you had a few challenges. You had a few obstacles maybe. Few questions, few like, mm, few thought journeys, few emotional meltdowns, a few, uh, you know, body states that you didn't quite know what to do with, but you didn't think they were helpful. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, in doing this process and doing this direct working with the mind, which is what we're doing here you see actually how the mind has a mind of its own. Is this a surprise to you? Well, you know, it can be kind of dismaying when we sit down and actually start observing more closely and over, you know, the horizon of sit after sit, day after day. You know, it becomes more undeniable that, you know, there's stuff going on there in terms of our internal experience, in terms of our relationship to sensory experience that we're not on top of. (laughs) So, 
you know, we have this idea that we should be in charge and that we should just be able to select our experience, right? And sometimes it seems like we can, right? Sometimes we can select our experience. But, you know, we really overgeneralize that. But, you know, this idea that we're actually in charge of immediate experiences, what you might call wrong view. Like, that's like a messed up understanding. But it's deeply, it's deeply rooted in us. Why? You know, we don't... We don't have we don't have the uh, the viewing capacity, the stability of mind to actually be able to observe closely enough to recognize what we're seeing and allow ourselves to be our understanding to be informed and reshaped by that. The the truth is we have more influence than control. So by working wisely with the causes and conditions that are present, we can shift the mind stream in a more wholesome and cooperative direction. So it's, this is more like an educational or agricultural nature uh, to reality than it is a com- command and control one. So just like with all agricultural processes, we need to keep attending to the plant, right? Moment by moment, day by day, keep chugging along. We can keep planting the seeds of awareness, strengthening mindfulness, and doing what we can to nurture mindfulness and all these these other wholesome qualities of the mind that we discern through our understanding of wise intention and the truth of karma. So reality is lawful and not random. Things arise and pass away lawfully due to causes and conditions. So if you were going to, if I was going to summarize the, the teachings of the Buddha in a nutshell, I might say something like, um, the teaching of the Buddha is about how to get on the upside of the truth of conditionality and impermanence. Understanding, okay, this is the framework, this is the context, this this is the truth about how it works. This is how how you can hold it, this is how you can understand it, this is how how you can relate to this, this is how you can develop this, this is how you can let go of that. This is, this is how you can go in this direction instead of going in this direction or just sort of like be wobbling around some vague state, not knowing where you are and not consciously making any choices at all. So I said we don't have a command and control relationship to experience, immediate experience. I don't know. Maybe we're all influencers. (laughs) We're our own influencers.
So that's good for now. So recognizing now that we've done this practice together of hearing the Dhamma attentively, opening your mind streams to the dropping of seeds of awakening by hearing the the teachings of the Buddha, we can now together offer any benefit that might be present now or in the future from doing this wholesome action. Offer it out to all beings without exception. Understanding right now that we've generated a certain set of causes and conditions through our wholesome action. Because we are interrelated to everything, these kinds of cultivations have an effect on the totality. May the wholesome action that we've done here together be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere.